What's up guys? This is our Q&A road trip edition. This is Michelle. And this is Angela. And we did a question box on Instagram um, to get some questions from you guys to make our road trip pass a little faster. So we're just going to start with six questions so this doesn't get too long. Um, Angela's going to read the questions and I'm going to answer. Angela will chime in as well and hopefully we can get you guys some answers that can help you. All right, so the first question is gonna be starting training for team sports, like what to do, such as the example given was fly ball. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, I love dog sports and the more I try, the more I want to try. Like we started bite work and I love bite work and now we're dabbling in other things and I wanna try uh, duck diving and maybe even dabble in agility at some point, we'll see. I would love, love, love to compete in fly ball at some point, uh, but I'm gonna wait until I get my fly ball dog because there's <laughs> a lot of risk of injury in that sport. So I have a very specific breed in mind that I'll be getting and competing in fly ball with. But, so as far as preparing for sports, I think the biggest thing is relationship. If you have a good relationship with your dog, you're gonna enjoy sports regardless. Um, Specifically in like the Schutzend IGP PSA bite work world, there is a saying, love the dog first and the sport second. And I think that's really important because people get caught up in the competition and the community and they forget about their relationship with the dog. So I think the biggest thing overall is relationship. Do you have a relationship with your dog? Is it a good relationship? Do you have good communication with your dog? And I think the more you work together, the better understanding you'll have of each other. And there are a lot of things that we don't recognize that our dogs tune into, specifically like our body language and our spatial pressure and things like that. And that stuff's really, really important in sports, especially things like agility. Um, so, you know, in all dog training, you fade out the lure at some point. And in things like agility or fly ball, you're fading out yourself as the lure. Um, but fly ball is a really, really interesting sport and it takes a really long time to get good at it because it is such a risky sport. If you don't know what fly ball is, essentially it is a dog relay race with jumps and there is a pad at the end that the dog rebounds off of and they get a ball, a ball shoots out. So basically they're just running as fast as they can in a straight line over hurdles. They grab the ball, rebound off, and sprint the hurdles back, and the next stop goes. Um, so very much like a relay race kind of idea. It's a very stressful environment. It's a high energy. The dogs are high drive. Um, the deeper you get into it and the more competitive it gets, the crazier and crazier the environments get. You start seeing things like the sight hounds and the crazy sport mixes like the little border collie whip it pit mixes and things like that and when you get those purpose bred sport mixed dogs in there and it gets really really competitive you kind of have to decide at that point like am i in this for fun now or am i in it for the competition um so there's a great fly ball club um right outside of charlotte it's called bitches be crazy <laughs> so if you check them out on facebook i funny enough I was at the park and I saw someone get out of their car with two border whippets, which is a border collie whippet cross, very much a purpose bred sport mix. Um, 
And I was like, oh, wow, I think those are border whippets. And then I noticed she had a Vario cage in her car, which is a crash-tested kennel insert for the car. It's like a permanent insert. So, of course, I was like, oh, this is a dog person. Like, let's be best friends. And I didn't approach her or anything, but after a while of walking around, I passed her, and I was just like, hey, nice dogs. And we got talking, and it turned out that she actually owns the Flyball Club. So... I'm very excited to learn about it. I think I will probably keep my current dogs out of the sport just for the safety aspect, but I definitely want to get involved in a fly ball club, get to know the community, get to know the sport a little bit better. Um, and that would be my advice to you guys as well. If you decide that you want to get involved in sports before you actually start your dog in the sport actually go watch it in person, immerse yourself in the sport, meet the community, meet the people, meet the trainers, see what it's actually like in real life because the environment that you see on the internet is very, very different from the environment that you're going to experience in real life. So definitely um, establish, you know, your place in the club of your choice sport and actually watch dogs getting worked um, if people will let you work their dogs lots and lots of handling dogs is only going to make you better at handling your dog um, but yeah I think relationship communication um, getting out there getting established in a club before you kind of just go all in I think that's all really big stuff got anything Ange on that one um, I think the relationship is a very, very good point. I would also say because you asked about team sports, um, I just confidence. Confidence building is important for any aspect of training, but you don't want a dog that's not going to be confident going in and trying to work with a team of dogs. That's a good point. That's something I didn't even really like conceptualize is the fact that it is a team sport. I think a big thing probably would be like neutralizing. Um, so if you have a dog that's like, dog reactive or dog excited or just kind of fixates on dogs doing some work to kind of neutralize your dog around other dogs that would probably be a great start especially because it is such a high drive sport and it is fast paced dogs are amped um and as you know <laughs> if your dog is amped that reactivity is going to escalate of course so definitely think to angela's point um the confident and neutral temperament around dogs is very, very important for that sport. Which then, of course, just goes back around to the relationship with you, making you more important than any of the surroundings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, question two. Service, ta service dog task training overview. So the example given was, how did you teach Kazi a heart rate alert, and how would you go about task training? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a great question. So there are several different ways that you can go about. We'll be specific on this one and we'll say a heart rate alert. Um, many dogs have not, not a natural alert, but they do have a natural recognition of change. Um, many, many, many dogs you'll see will start to pick up on stuff like that. And I think um, if you suspect that your dog might possibly be picking up on that stuff naturally, it's a great idea to write stuff down, take notes. Um, if your dog is acting funny, you see a pretty clear change in behavior, but nothing, you know, extreme. They just seem a little worried about you. You smell funny. I would look at the time, look at your heart rate, write it all down, and eventually 
you'll be able to figure out if there is or is not a pattern. And if there's a pretty consistent consistent pattern of where your dog is showing those strange change in behaviors, um, more than likely that's probably a natural recognition. Um, with that natural recognition, you can shape it into a nice alert. So I was uh, partially lucky and partially partially very, very intentional with Causey's um, heart rate alert because when I retired Virgil very suddenly, I needed a dog who was enough started that she could work pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and so in my search, Causey was one of the dogs that um, already had that natural recognition somewhat of an alert shaped and so that was part of the reason that I chose her so I am very lucky that I did not have to do the basic scent training with her um, she picked it up very quickly and I just shaped um, what I wanted the alert to be a lot of people do a hand nudge or a leg nudge or they'll do pawing at the person Causey is trained to jump on me if I'm standing because I won't notice things like nudging me or pawing at me. So I, I do not want a subtle behavior. I want a loud behavior that's very, very obvious and one that I can't ignore. Um, so if I'm standing, it is to jump on me. And if I'm sitting down, she will put her elbows in my lap. Um, and in that case, her response to the alert basically is just the alert as well. So very, very often people who find out that their dog has that natural recognition, they'll just shape it. Um, it's pretty simple to shape. You're just shaping it like you would do anything else with your dog. Like if you're free shaping down with your dog, you know, when they get into that position that you want, you reward for it consistently. And then you're going to consistently get that behavior. And it's the same thing with those natural changes in behavior. You're just rewarding what you like. Um, if you're noticing that consistent pattern, and uh, kind of ignoring things that don't line up. Like if you have a dog that just kind of breaks a command and they're up in your face and just being a little weird and you notice that your heart rate has spiked, that's a good time to reward for it. But if that same thing happens and your heart rate hasn't changed, that's where you would ignore it. So you're not correcting, there's no corrections involved in scent training or in free shaping. Um, and yeah, pretty, pretty easy to shape the behavior if it's naturally there. Um, as far as teaching it for a dog that does not naturally have it, it is scent based, of course. Um, people are always really amazed by a heart rate alert. They're like, how can your dog sense that? How can your dog detect that? And it's always interesting when you explain it to people that, you know, your smell changes. Think about when you exercise and you sweat. When you sweat, you start to stink and we can smell that. Dogs can smell the change before we start to perspirate while our heart rates spike. So the first step can't be teaching your dog to look for that specific scent. You have to first teach them that scent has a meaning and teach them how to indicate on scents. So typically I start with coffee. Um, it's really easy for the dog. It's a strong, very, very specific smell. Um, and I literally start by free shaping it. I get a scent tube. I use a K cup with a hole popped in the top. I literally just take like a pen and pop a little hole in the top of the K cup, put it in the scent tube. You can also use Mason jars. Um, and when the dog takes a nice sniff, I'm going to click or mark verbally, whichever one the dog is using 
and then reward for it. And eventually, when that dog knows what I want, when I pull that equipment out, I'm gonna start shaping the indication, which might be pawing me or jumping on me or whatever. And then I eventually will be able to work in the actual scent. Um, you do have to take samples. That's where it gets a little bit tricky because the, the samples do have to be kept quote unquote sanitized or clean um, because you don't want the scent to be contaminated and, and changed. You want it to be your exact scent. So um, lots of unscented soap and gloves and Ziploc bags and cotton balls and the actual training, the scent itself is, is, a, is a lot of work. Um, but something to make sure is if you are teaching that scent means something and you're using coffee and you teach your dog to paw your leg to alert to the coffee, you can't then teach your dog to paw at you with a high heart rate sample. You have to pick a different indication. So just make sure that when you're beginning the, the training of scent means something, just make sure that you're choosing a different indication than what you may want for your high heart rate alert. Um, there's tons of different things that you can do. Personally, Kazi jumps on me, that's what works best for me. Some people use things like a Brinksel. If you don't know what a Brinksel is, it is a little like four to five inch piece of fabric or biothane or whatever that they clip to the dog's collar and the dog will pick up the bringsel and hold it in their mouth as the alert and it is a really nice subtle alert um that would not work for me because i am oblivious and i wouldn't even notice uh but it works great for some people um there's a million and one things you can do for alerts but yeah you can free shape and you can scent train if you have a dog who you know for sure has that recognition, but you wanna move it along a little faster, make it a little stronger. You can scent train and free shape. Um, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. Ange, anything? Yep, that's pretty much, I was just gonna mention about the scent training. That's what I'm doing with Freya for my cortisol stress levels. And it's a combination of the scent training and free shaping, because she has shown a couple of times that she seems to notice when there's a change in the stress levels um, but it, there's obviously no alerts or anything so we're just doing a combination of scent training plus free shaping that whenever I notice it yeah I think that's a way a, a really nice way to get the alert really strong especially for something aside from like a heart rate alert especially things like a seizure alert is or seizure alerts scent based um, as I, far as I know they can be I actually don't train not, seizure dogs, so I don't know the yeah, answer to that. I'm 100% sure. I would think it would have to be, but I don't know. If you guys know the answer to that, send it my way. We love to learn new things. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, scent training is great. Um, and I'll add on to that. Aside from task training scent, there are some really, really, really fun dog sports that you can get involved in um, for scent work. If you are someone who is not disabled, does not need a service dog, but you're very, very interested in all of the scent work stuff that comes with that, try tracking, try nose work, AKC scent work, anything like that. It is really, really, really cool to watch your dog use their nose. Barn hunt. Barn hunt is Barn a great hunt. one. It's yes. a newer sport, but it looks like a lot of fun. <laughs> it does. Barn hunt. So essentially, basically, it kind of is what it sounds like. <laughs> um, it is like a barn scenario and Essentially, there are rats in tubes and the dog has to indicate on the rat, um, but 
in the barn hunt community, these are not just like basic pet rats. The rats are like very, um, like well taken care of and people will get mad at you. Like if your dog picks up the two <laughs> that the rat is in. So it takes a very special combination of drive and gentleness from the dog. Um, but it seems like a really fun sport. I haven't tried it yet. There aren't really any great options in our area for barn hunt. Um, but I'd love to add a rat one or rat two to Kazi's uh, <laughs> list of titles. That'd be pretty cool for sure. But yeah, lots of awesome scent work um, ideas. There's even some like virtual online uh, nose work titles you can do. All kinds of fun stuff. All right, yeah, next question. Um, handling, resource guarding, um, dog on dog or dog on cat. No specific example given for what was being guarded, just resource guarding in general. Okay, dog on cat's hilarious. <laughs> I know it shouldn't be, resource guarding should never be humorous, but that is hilarious, dog on cat. <laughs> um, so generally, basically with resource guarding, the goal is always to prevent. The goal is always prevention training. You always want to avoid resource guarding becoming an issue. This is really, really hard for people because especially human to dog, we feel that we are out of control if we can't take things from our dog with zero consequence. This goes into one of the other questions that was asked, which is how to take things away without causing resource guarding. Two birds, one stone. Yep. Love it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so human to dog. This is where we feel really out of control when we can't take something from our dogs. You know, if we feel like what well, we need to be able to stick our hands in our dog's food bowls, we need to be able to take our dog's food bowls away from them with zero consequence, because what if we have to take something dangerous away from them super quickly? The quickest way to create resource guarding is to, in fact, take away the resource. If you are a huge fan of M&Ms and somebody keeps taking your M&Ms, you're gonna guard those damn M&Ms. <laughs> Quit taking my M&Ms. Hands off. Hands off my M&Ms. <laughs> Dogs are the same way. So if we're taking their food, taking their bones, taking their toys from them, that is exactly how you create resource guarding behaviors. And it's not coming from a place of aggression, it's a, coming from a place of insecurity. They're like, oh no, they've taken my things before, they're gonna take this too, so I better guard it so that they don't take it. But resource guarding can be a really hard thing because it can be genetic, and sometimes it's not even a specific item that a dog will resource guard. Sometimes it's people, sometimes it's furniture, sometimes it's their own space. Um, dogs can resource guard literally the air that they breathe. <laughs> so. Um, as far as dog to dog, very similar situation. If you have a dog who has zero boundaries, no respect at all, is very pushy and will just take things away from your other dogs, that's a place to step in and advocate for both dogs in the situation. The dog taking things feels like there's something that he needs and his needs aren't being met. And the other dog is going to develop that insecurity of I need to guard this item because the dog is going to take it away. And that said, a little bit of resource guarding is not a bad thing if the communication works. If you have two dogs and one dog's chewing on a bone, the other dog walks up, starts to inspect it, and the dog with the bone 
does a little low grumble or growl and the dog backs off, that's great communication. I wouldn't really consider that resource guarding at all. I would just consider that, hey, don't touch my bone. And then other dogs like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I won't touch it. Just didn't know. So communication is really, really important. And there's a fine line between letting your dogs communicate to each other and where we need to step in and advocate for the dogs. Um, so if you have dogs that are resource guarding things like toys from each other, then toys need to be taken out of the picture when both dogs are free together. Um, if you have dogs that resource guard food, they shouldn't be fed together. If you have dogs that are resource guarding the couch or you, there should be management in place like putting one dog on place and one dog is free or vice versa, crate and rotate. There are tons and tons of management options for resource guarding, but we were listening to a podcast earlier today. Highly recommend it so far. It's Canine Aptitude um, on Apple Podcasts. And something that they discussed was in order to actually fix a behavior and get rid of a behavior, you can't let the dog get good at it. If your dog growls at the other dog because they approached their bone, they've learned growling gets that dog to go away. The next time that dog comes back, they might push a little bit more. So the dog with the bone's gonna growl louder. And those behaviors continue to escalate and escalate and escalate. And the dog with the bone suddenly gets really, really good at resource guarding. By taking away the items or the space or putting in that management to take away the things that they're, you know they're going to guard, you're gonna mitigate a lot of that resource guarding just by doing that. Um, I'm gonna be honest with you, I have no idea how to approach resource guarding with a cat. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> that would literally, in my experience with cats, you're, unless you literally train the cat from the time you get it, um, you're not gonna be able to tell that cat when it can go somewhere and when it can't. So if you notice resource guarding issues with a dog towards a cat, whether it's like she said, food, toys, anything, bed, couch, um, if the cat comes out, dog goes up, if it has to do with, or like dog goes on place, um, or if the dog and cat are out and they're fine to coexist, but if the dog resource guards objects, those objects go away. Yeah, so really when it comes to dog to dog or dog to cat, dog to another animal, really it comes down to good management. Um, and it's hard because as owners, we don't like seeing our dogs communicate to each other through things like a growl. It's scary and our instinct is to immediately correct it. As soon as our dogs let out a growl for whatever the reason, automatically we're like, hey, don't do that. Because that's just our startle response. That's just what comes out. We don't necessarily really think about it. We just know that a growl is not typically a positive thing. And so we want to extinguish it as soon as we hear it. Um, but in reality, I want, I growls are great. Please, God, growl at me. I would so much rather you growl at me or growl at a dog and give that appropriate warning than not give any warning at all. And all of a sudden snap. Exactly, yeah. Um, so yes, lots and lots of good management. Um, and actually, back to that same point, I think confidence building is a huge thing as well. Um, and honestly, that, that appropriate management alone is going to build a dog's confidence because they're not living in a state of insecurity. Oh my God, something's going to be taken from me all the time. Um, but other, you know, confidence building activities, some good relationship building. If the dog trusts the handler, you're not going to see things like resource guarding nearly as much. 
Um, but good management between dogs, pets, whatever it is. Um, so let's roll back around to the taking things from your dog safely. Is that what that question yes. was? Will you reread that? Yep. So it's how to take things away without causing resource guarding. Okay. Yes. So this is the method that I personally use. It has worked very, very well for me. Um, I've used this with dogs who have displayed some overall, I won't say aggressive tendencies, but definitely some borderline aggressive tendencies. Um, basically just resource guarding behavior that has escalated and escalated and gotten worse and worse because just like anything with dogs, they will continue doing things that are reinforced. And let's say that you have been taking your dog's food bowl from them since they were a puppy just to make sure that you're able to do that. But now all of a sudden your dog starts growling when you approach them or touch them when they're eating. Well, it's probably because back on that same podcast, actually, <laughs> it's a reinforcement history. Every time that you've approached them when they're eating, you take away the food. So trying to undo that reinforcement history is going to be really, really, really hard. So we approach it very differently. I prevention train and fix the resource guarding behaviors the exact same way. First thing I do is teach a very, very strong recall. Very, very strong recall. Your markers need to be very, very charged. Your clicker, your yes, whatever it is. If your recall is failing like 50 or more percent of the time, this is not the appropriate time to start this protocol. If your recall is like 90% or higher succeeding, that's where I would start applying this. But if you apply it before your recall is strong, you are going to make your recall weaker doing this. So step one, charge your markers. Yes and clicker, charge, charge, charge. If you don't know what charging means, it's essentially just bringing value to a word or sound. So the way that we charge the clicker is we take a dog's meal and we say, click, handful of food, click, handful of food. If it's a dog that's more motivated by a ball, click, throw the ball, click, throw the ball, click, throw the ball. You are bringing a positive association to that word or sound so that when the dog hears it, they're going to immediately whip their head around looking for that reward. So let's say you've got a really, really nice strong recall off of a ball or a toy or another dog. Now you're gonna start advancing that recall away from even higher value things. If your dog resource guards food, the first thing is to practice recalling them away from their kibble. But if you recall your dog away from their food and there's no reward or an equal or lesser reward, it's not gonna be worth it to the dog to recall away from that food. And therefore, you're not gonna get consistency in that behavior. So the reward that you have has to be exponentially higher than the reward that you are recalling the dog away from. So if you are recalling them away from their bowl of kibble, you've got to have chicken or cheese or something, hot dogs, something super, super high value to make it worth it. That's my first step. Always a really strong recall and then advancing the recall to call the dog off of really high value things. Every dog is motivated by something. Whatever it is that they're resource guarding, they are obviously motivated by that thing. 
So recalling them away from that thing is great practice as long as you are using rewards appropriately. The next step is building up that duration away from the resource. So when I recall the dog to me, I reward and I immediately release them back to the food for a long time before I add in the next step because I don't want the dog to automatically assume that when it leaves the food bowl, it's gonna have to be away from the food bowl for a long time or whatever the resource is. And once the dog can very, very consistently recall away from that resource, that's when I'll add in my next step. So if a dog is resource guarding its bed, I would recall the dog away from the bed. I'd put them in a sit stay, a down stay, a place stay, some variety of stay. And then I'll go pick up the item, put it back down, come back and reward the dog for their compliance and then release them back to the item. I'll stay on that same path until I get great consistency in that. And once I've really, really nailed that behavior down, that's when I find the final behavior, which is recalling the dog away from the item, picking up the item, putting it away, and then a huge reward for my dog. Resource guarding can still occur because we are still removing the item. But because of safety and management, we need to remove that item. So we move the dog away from us with a reliable stay or putting them in another room, putting them in a crate, taking them outside, whatever it is. Resource guarding can still occur because we are still removing the item. So we have to make it very rewarding to the dog to leave that item. So those high value rewards are really, really, really important. But the worst thing that you can do for resource guarding is to take away the resources, whatever it is. Like we said earlier, dogs will resource guard literally anything. <laughs> and um, that pretty much hits it all on the head. I mean, a lot of, lot of management to go into it. And then if you're just trying to prevent that resource guarding, like she said, just work on those cues, work on the recall, work on um, all your markers, make sure everything is really solid before you start all that training. Yeah. And I mean, management comes down to a lot of different things. It's not just utilizing. It's not just utilizing an X-Pen or utilizing a crate or anything like that. It's also hand feeding. If your dog resource guards their bowl of food, you can pretty much fix that behavior by removing the bowl and hand feeding. Um, so sometimes it really is a simple fix. If your dog is resource guarding their bowl of food from another dog, remove the other dog from the situation when the dog is eating. Um, so yeah, lots and lots of management, lots and lots of advocating for your dog. I do feel that things come, become a little bit different when the dog is resource guarding the handler. Um, I do think that comes down to a bit more insecurity, fear, and things like that. But when it comes to items, furniture, space, things like that, it really does just come down to really, really good quality dog training and really good management. Yeah, completely agree. Next up. All right, last question. Um, dealing with personal play, how do you deal with personal play with an overly excitable dog? Okay, so this is a really good one. So we just actually, we actually just had a dog in with this exact issue. Yes. Um, so this is really, really common. People want to hand play with their dog. They want to do personal play. They're playing back and forth with their dog, not using a toy or food. They're just playing with their dog. Um, a lot of dogs get really, really over aroused by this and 
that hyperarousal be can become behavior that we really don't like. Jumping, biting, humping, all kinds of crazy behaviors can come from that. So we have to be really, really careful with personal play because whatever you respond to, you reinforce. Whether it's in a good way or a bad way, if your dog jumps on you and you push them down, that's play to your dog sometimes. When I play, when I personal play with my Doberman, I push him all the time. I push him around and he jumps back at me in a play bow with his little nub wagging. Yep. And I push him away and he runs back and jumps into a play bow. And then he barks and then he spins around and play bows again. And then he paws at me and I push him away again. And dogs have a really hard time deciphering what is and is not play. So if you're in personal play with your dog and the specific thing that you really don't like that they do is jumping, play has to end there. Turn it off, you ignore the dog. Completely and totally ignore. You're not making eye contact, you're not saying anything, you're not pushing them down, you're not even acknowledging. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Acknowledging slash recognizing. <laughs> I just invented a new word today. It works. <laughs> You're not acknowledging that behavior at all because you will reinforce it. So if you are playing keep away with your dog and you're running around and you stop and when they almost get to you, you run away and then you chase them a little bit and then they chase you and then you stop and then they get you and they jump all over you and you hate that jumping, don't reinforce it. You have to be really careful in all things when owning a dog. You have to be so careful about what you reinforce. and. Personal play is a really big place that we accidentally reinforce things. So this is a place where I would use differential reinforcement of probably of an other behavior, this is DRO. So this is where it's really important to understand dog's body language and dog communication because you have to know when your dog is entering that state of hyperarousal before it happens. So let's say that you're playing in the backyard with your dog and you're running around and jumping around and pushing them around and you're playing and you see your dog's behavior change just a little bit, almost this like kicking it into the next gear behavior. This is where you shouldn't really be taking reinforcement away, but you should be adding in other reinforcers. So maybe you have food in your pocket during your game of play and when you see the change in body language there, Instead of continuing the play, you recall your dog, put them in a down, reward, reward, reward. Throw the food away from you, reward, reward. Recall them to a sit, reward, reward, reward. And then release them. It's very much a thing where you have to build the dog's thresholds for the play itself. Um, the dog that we just had in, it wasn't even play. It was just praise. You touched the dog, made eye contact <laughs> with the dog, and she just lost all of her brain cells yep. <laughs> um, and so we started by just toning it down just taking it down if you have a high energy high anxiety dog you being high energy and high anxiety is only going to feed into that reinforce it and exacerbate it so let's say that you want to play with your dog and you know that they're gonna try to bite you while you play, not an aggressive way. They're just mouthy when they play. This is normal. Dogs don't have thumbs, they don't have hands. So they use their mouths, which is very, very normal. And it's also very, very normal as humans to be frustrated by the dog's mouths being on us. But we can avoid that behavior 
with that differential reinforcement. So something that I do with my dogs is I keep a tug or a ball in my back pocket. And we play a game of what I like to call switch. So we're playing, I'm pushing them around, jumping around, I'll jump into a play bow and grab at their leg and then they'll jump back. And then when I feel like maybe we're reaching that point of threshold before we're gonna enter that hyper arousal state, I switch to the toy or I switch to the ball, whatever it is, so that they still get to be reinforced by the play and by the game and that way you're not risking killing any drive. It's just a differential reinforcer so that your dog can continue play and you can continue interaction with your dog and they can still have their needs met but without their mouth being on you. So that's a great example is having a toy, having a redirection item on you, whether that be food or a tug or whatever. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, that hits pretty much the big points that I was thinking of. Um, yeah, just those thresholds because yeah. play, play is so important. And back to what we covered in almost all the other questions, relationship building. Play is a great way to do relationship building, but it's also a great way to destroy a relationship yes. with your dog. So it is Absolutely. definitely knowing that body language, knowing your dog's thresholds, being able to take it back a few notches, um, and just finding what works best for you. Maybe you have a dog where you really can't play with a chalk it stick with them, or maybe you can't play, you know, with the flirt pole with them. That's okay. Find what works for you. I think, and just to add, everybody's opinion of hyper arousal or what they feel is too much with their dog is different. Um, for me, like with my 110 pound Doberman, of course, there's going to be a point where if he's just over the top, over threshold, way, way over aroused, that dog weighs like 20 pounds less <laughs> than me. Um, of course, that's going to be too much for me. But when it comes to maybe a smaller dog that doesn't have quite as much energy or as much drive, it may be a different situation. So I think knowing what your boundaries are for personal play and that hyper arousal are really, really important. And I think even more than that, being consistent with that boundary is really important. Um, maybe, you know, if you're personal playing with your dog, running around, playing keep away with them and hand play and, you know, all the fun stuff that dogs love and they start that mouthing you or they start that jumping on you. and that's always your boundary, you're gonna really minimize that behavior a whole lot faster than if some days you're okay with it and some days you're not. That's exactly what I was just gonna say. You know, all of us having chronic illnesses on the team, me having chronic pain, I have certain days where I really cannot tolerate playing with my dog and she jumps on me and we wrestle and you know, I allow her to jump all over me, we play like that, but even on my bad days, I either have to choose not to play with her, or I have to understand that I'm probably gonna be a little sore because those <laughs> are the boundaries and I'm not gonna just cut off that part of our play simply because I'm having a bad health day. So understanding that most days you may be able to tolerate certain behaviors in play, if you think on those days where you can't tolerate it is you know, just enough, then you need to not allow it ever. Yeah. My brain totally farted there. I don't know if that came out right. <laughs> it made sense. It made sense. Sometimes after like 10 minutes of talking, I'm like, what the hell was I just talking about? Yep. 
it's all just so like it's on shelves in my brain and once i've gone down all the shelves i'm like okay what just happened um but yeah i think it's really really important to have that consistency in all things but definitely in those boundaries with your dogs because dogs don't generalize naturally um and they can't just kind of guess what how we're feeling that day maybe we're exhausted we're just not in the mood but we maybe didn't even recognize that we initiated play with our dog and they're like wait what the hell i thought we were playing what's going on and for that reason i think it's really important to teach a all done or an enough in all play the off switch yes um so whether it's chuck it frisbee tug personal play dogs playing whatever it is i think it's really really important to teach and actively practice an off switch Um, Something I recommend a lot for people who have dogs that play like way too rough with each other is Back to a recall having a really really strong recall being able to recall that dog out of a group and Possibly taking them inside or you know moving on to another rewarding activity that's less arousing is a great way to practice switching that mindset it is really really hard to change a dog's mindset in general it is very difficult to change a dog's mindset from excitement high energy play to relax and it's extremely hard as well because what looks like relax sometimes isn't if you're recalling your dog out of play and putting them in a downstay while the other dogs play and then they prove that they have the impulse control to stay in that down so you release them back into play you did not just teach an off switch you did not just teach the dog to go from energetic to relaxed you taught the dog that if they stay there and build that frustration to get back to those dogs then they'll get exactly what they want so really really important to teach that enough or all done cue so that your dog knows okay she said that word so that means it's time to calm down a really nice example is my husband taught his dog that when he says all done or enough and he puts the chuck it stick down the dog gets to drink out of the spigot so now because reinforcement reinforcement drives behavior If he says the words all done, she will drop everything she's doing and run to that water spigot every single time. And that's just a really strong reinforcement history. Every single time that he said the word all done and put the chuck it stick down, she got to drink out of the spigot, which she loves. So really shaping those cues and not expecting your dog to just relax with zero reinforcement it's really important i think people are like okay you need to be done playing and just lay there happily with zero reward or reinforcement and that's not realistic at all there still has to be reinforcement um but yeah and i would say on the flip side of that i do know a few trainers that teach an on switch essentially yes. so if you're going to start a training session or you're going to start a play session you can say ready and just get them really amped up so that you're not worried about potentially accidentally amping the dog up. Um, You know that there is a set word to begin a session, whether it's training or play, and then a set word or cue to end the session. Yeah, that's a great addition. I didn't even think about that, but that is a really, really nice 
way to create clarity with your dog and way to create mutual understanding. Especially if the dog is just easy to get overly excited. <laughs> if you have a yeah. dog that will take any type of excited cue and turn that into, yeah, it's time to play, um, creating that on switch and off switch will help the communication so much. Yes, absolutely. And I think breed fulfillment is honestly a really large part of that too. If you have a dog that has crazy, crazy prey drive and you're trying to get that dog into a relaxed mindset off of a flirt pole, good luck. <laughs> the flirt pole is probably not the appropriate place to start teaching that. Start teaching it with a lower value play option and work your way up to things like a flirt pole. But fulfilling your dog's needs as a breed, super, super important. Um, just in general. We're actually going to do an episode on that soon. So that'll probably be very beneficial for everything that we talked about in yeah. this episode, for sure. Yeah. Anything that's, else? That's pretty much it. I think just recapping, going back to the whole relationship building, confidence building, and just understanding your dog's body language and thresholds. All right. Good shit. Well, I hope you guys had some nicely answered questions. Um, if something doesn't make sense because we are neurodivergent and our brains <laughs> don't work like most people's feel free to reach out we'll answer them as best as we can and we hope that you guys tune in to the next podcast